Well, hello. Uh, welcome to our event this afternoon on Freedom of Information Act and Government Transparency, a report card. My name is Patrick Eddington, Senior Fellow here at the Cato Institute. Uh, I am delighted to be joined uh, by three terrific panelists who also just happen to be some of my friends. Uh, that's one of the pr privileges of being able to do this kind of thing. Uh, just a few admin and housekeeping notes that I want to go over here before we dive into the substance of, of our proceedings. Uh, you can submit your questions uh, via the webpage, Facebook, YouTube, and on Twitter using the hashtag Century of Surveillance. Um, we're going to talk a lot about uh, how surveillance can be at least occasionally uncovered uh, through the use of, uh, of the Freedom of Information Act. And we will be uh, taking questions, of course, throughout the entire uh, proceedings here, and I'll be working those in as we go. So definitely uh, keep those coming. Um, we have uh, three extremely experienced uh, FOIA experts uh, with us today. We're joined by Emily Creighton, the Legal Director uh, for Transparency at the American Immigration Council. Uh, Lauren Harper, the Director of Public Policy and Open Government Affairs at the National Security Archive located at uh, George Washington University. And Ginger Quintero McCall, who is the Legal Director of Demand Progress. Thanks so much to all of you for carving out time uh, to be with us today. I, I do want to make a quick note. We are going to be spending most of our time uh, on the Freedom of Information Act today, but there are actually two laws that essentially here kind of go together. Uh, and the other one that I do want to speak about just briefly and provide an example, and David, if you could bring up my, uh, my little show and tell piece here. Uh, the other law in question is the Privacy Act. And this is the one where you can actually submit uh, a request to a federal agency uh, or a federal government agency or department asking for any records they have on you personally. And uh, I, some of you may know, I'm a former Central Intelligence Agency uh, officer. And uh, since I got to Cato, I have suspected that my former employer has been monitoring, uh, at least publicly, everything that I do. Uh, and that turns out to be true when you actually get all this material back in a Privacy Act lawsuit. Uh, and, and this is an example of the kinds of redactions, and we will talk about some of these uh, kinds of redactions that you're actually seeing here today. Um, but you'll notice here that they, they don't really think much of me at my former employer, the Central Intelligence Agency, and, and they don't think much of me because I have the temerity to demand that they be transparent in a way that doesn't actually compromise national security, but still tell me uh, what they know about me. This particular graphic, uh, and David, you can go ahead and take that down now. This, this particular graphic um, involves the fact that as a former CIA employee, someone who signed a secrecy agreement uh, as a result of a court case uh, called SNEP v. United States, I have to at least nominally submit writings to the Central Intelligence Agency so they can verify that nothing classified is in there. Um, you can imagine what someone like me, who's an open government advocate, thinks about that kind of a court case and that kind of a, of a stipulation. Uh, and the reality is I rarely submit anything to the Central Intelligence Agency uh, if it, unless it de deals directly and specifically with the CIA itself. So that's an example for those of you who might have an interest in pursuing that. Uh, I would recommend that you just you know poke around on the internet if you've got a particular agency or department uh, that may have records on you, you think they do. Take a look uh, at their FOIA and Privacy Act page, kind of see what the requirements are there uh, and, and go after it. I always encourage folks, you know, to submit Privacy Act requests on themselves where federal agency and government departments are concerned. 
just so you get a sense uh, of what they might be up to as it pertains to you. But the, the real star of the show today, so to speak, is the, the particular uh, law that we're all, I think, a little bit more familiar with, which is the Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA for short. That law has been on the book since 1966. It was a California congressman, a Democrat by the name of John Moss, who was responsible for making that happen. Uh, he got it done despite a veto threat from then President Lyndon Baines Johnson. Uh, and we have uh, all benefited you know, from FOIA over the years, uh, all of us in our work. But at the same time, uh, you know, it's got a lot of issues, uh, a lot of problems, essentially, uh, continue to have problems, most of which stem from how federal agencies and departments essentially choose to interpret the statute, or I would argue misinterpret the statute. And we're going to run through some of those things today. But what I want to do is give our, our panelists an opportunity to kind of tell us, you know, what drew them to this work, because this is, especially if you're an attorney, uh, this is a, a relatively niche field. Um, it does require a fair amount of specialization, and uh, uh, it is it is an interesting thing to be doing. So, you know, uh, Lauren, uh, I know that you're not an, a, an attorney yourself, but you got interested in this a long time ago, and uh, you've got a very, very interesting kind of lead in here with respect to what kind of drew you to FOIA. So let's talk about that a little bit. Can we uh, can we bring up uh, that that first link that uh, that Lauren gave us here? It's kind of an iconic picture from the early 1980s. Right. So, I, yes, I'm not an attorney. Uh, I fell into FOIA kind of by accident. I, uh, I went into grad school and I studied both Middle Eastern studies and public policy analysis. And I was convinced that once I came out of grad school, I was going to be doing more with the Middle Eastern studies degree, you know, maybe with your former employer, the State Department. Um, and that that didn't pan out. But what drew me to the archive, the National Security Archive, my organization in the first place, was actually their Iraq project. They've had an Iraq project for a couple of decades where they've used FOIA to win the release of documents on the Iraq war. And the image that, that Pat's trying to show uh, is one of my favorite images from that project, and that's Donald Rumsfeld shaking hands with Saddam Hussein during a, a tour of the Middle East in 1983. Uh, but so I started on the Iraq project, and then as I was there and I saw what my other colleagues at the archive were doing with FOIA, I just became obsessed with it, particularly from, from the policy angle. So I wormed in there with my Middle Eastern studies interest, but really got obsessed with it when I saw all the ways that FOIA kind of influences um, a lot of the academic research my colleagues were doing. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, that... Uh... That picture of Donald Rumsfeld shaking Saddam Hussein's hand was kind of uh, indicative, essentially, of, of what the U.S. was doing in, in, the, uh, in the Southwest Asia region in that time. The Iran-Iraq war, of course, was uh, right. raging, and the United States, contrary to its public statements, was, in fact, beginning to very, very hardly tip uh, its, its emphasis towards uh, Iraq. And, of course, this is only happening not even four years after the uh, Iranian hostage crisis involving right. 52 hostages uh, and, and all the rest that flowed out of that. Um, you've, uh, and I think uh, our friend Emily, uh, I want to turn to her real quickly here because um, she's been doing this for a long time. And I think, you know, I'm certainly interested in what drew you to this particular area of the law. Thanks, Pat. Um, I have started to call myself an old timer at the American Immigration Council because I have been here for a number of years now. Um, and I have to say the FOIA work developed organically where we initially discovered that we could become uh, 
experts in this area law or needed to become more versed because um, immigration law, for those of you who are a little bit familiar with it, um, <laughs> I, I sometimes describe it as secret law. We have a statute on the books and it's a complex statute um, and people spend years and years uh, working within the Immigration Nationality Act, but much of immigration law, the, the memos, um, the policies are not readily available to folks. Um, and so we began to look at a couple of issues and I became absolutely hooked um, where I saw how investigations around access to counsel. This is an issue where I think most people understand that immigrants and deportation proceedings don't have appointed counsel um, like you would in a criminal proceeding, but you can, um, you, you can have your, your lawyer there, um, not appointed by the government. But in, there are other types of immigration proceedings outside of removal proceedings before an immigration judge. And in those proceedings, you are not necessarily permitted to have a lawyer, but who knows what those policies are. So um, we worked for a couple of years to learn more about what rights um, the agencies thought uh, lawyers had to be present during immigration proceedings before Customs and Border Protection. So, for example, if someone is pulled into secondary inspection, what rights does your attorney have? Or what rights, again, does the agency think your attorney has or doesn't have to be there um, with a client during that um, inspection? When you are interviewing for a green card with USCIS, another branch of DHS, where is your attorney allowed to sit in the room? Um, in cases people were being interviewed without their attorneys present. So we sort of embarked on an investigation to understand all of this better. And, and in the course, in the, during that period of time, and you know, I've been sort of looking at um, Department of Homeland Security for a number of years, you know, that was when Ali Mayorkas at USCIS, who's now the DHS secretary, was you know, accepting edits to policies around access to counsel in um, USCIS proceedings. And we were actually making some headway doing that kind of informal advocacy at the same time we were doing this investigative work. Um, another project that I found really fascinating and um, helped me understand how innovative FOIA work can be when you take data, government data, and analyze it. So we don't have to believe what the government's own analysis of its data is. We can take the same um, statistics and uh, share a different interpretation or maybe a more accurate interpretation. So we looked at uh, the Criminal Alien Project, which is a program, I should say, which is a huge enforcement, pro enforcement program that is essentially in all jails and prisons in the United States where immigrants who are incarcerated are then um, placed in our enforcement mechanism, essentially. So Immigration and Customs Enforcement then has access to them and can um, proceed with immigration um, action against individuals who are in our criminal system. And, and just so, so we understand, that doesn't mean that, that in some cases, they, in many, many cases, there were just charges and no convictions, right? So a person was charged, they were placed um, 
in a facility and then immigration became aware of them. So this was uh, one of the primary ways that people were deported from the United States, but nobody really understood the criminal, criminal alien program. And so we began to embark on an investigation there. And in that case, we actually got discovery because we didn't understand how the records were kept. So that was a very unique situation. Discovery is rare in FOIA cases. Um, but those two, those two projects really, um, I was hooked. you and your colleagues spent an enormous amount of time utilizing FOIA to kind of peel away at the layers of a bureaucracy in order to understand process, right? And at the same time, what they were trying to hide. That's uh, right. In, in That's right. How, yeah, in terms of how they actually went about business. So uh, in this criminal alien program, um, if, if when we say when you're saying that that folks had been charged, were they charged under U.S. law or or law of the country from which they exited? In, in essence, this is this is they were they were had criminal charges um, pending in some cases, and what happens is um, ICE places a detainer on an individual, so asks for um, the local law enforcement to hold on to that person until immigration can come and pick them up. Um, and so different jurisdictions around the country have different positions and policies around detainers and enforcement of detainers. Um, but that is generally how uh, they would come into the CAP program. Uh, and so through, through this investigation, and I believe that there's a link to the report, it's an older report now, and I believe they've rebranded the program since this report came out. But um, yes, they were able to um, sort of scoop up people who really were not what the program would lead you to believe criminals, so to speak, right? So it was a sort of um, misunderstood program, badly named and titled, um, that was uh, some, you know, just the, the public immigration attorneys, um, folks who care about due process and fair proceedings uh, really needed to better understand. And so, you know, this was one of the first investigations into the CAP program. It was just sort of something that existed, a loosely organized uh, program that didn't really have any policies and procedures around it and was operating differently in jails and prisons around the country, we discovered. Um, and so it was, you know, as many as, as all of us know who do this work, it's, it's a long, it's a, it's, you're playing the long game when you file a FOIA lawsuit, particularly one where you're going to be fighting over records. And that is always the case with um, immigration enforcement agencies. So ICE and CBP are not freely giving us documents in most cases. I can speak from personal experience on that one as well. Um, Ginger, you probably have the broadest level of experience among all of us uh, who are on this panel today in terms of your your time in the nonprofit community, your time in state government, as well as the federal government. Uh, so same question to you, you know, what, what ultimately drew you, you know, to, to this world of, of trying to make the government more understandable by prying documents out of that same government? So it's funny, FOIA wasn't ever really a thing that I meant to get into. I sort of stumbled into it. Um, my first week of college was September 11th of 2001. So I'm dating myself there. Um, but that, I think that event and the aftermath of it and the government action after it really profoundly shaped my career and the choices that I would end up making. I mean, my original plan when I started college was that I was going to be uh, an English teacher. 
But after several years of watching the television and yelling at the news about how unhappy I was <laughs> at the political situation, especially the, the sort of surveillance techniques and practices that were happening after September 11th, I decided that actually what I wanted to do was to go to law school and be a civil liberties attorney. Um, my timing was imperfect, though, because I graduated from law school in 2009, <laughs> which was not an auspicious time to graduate from law school. There were no jobs. Um, but I was very fortunate to get a job after law school at uh, EPIC, the Electronic Privacy Information Center, which I had interned at during my second year summer. Um, and they brought me back and offered me a staff position. And one of the first projects that I worked on when I was there was uh, the body scanners, the TSA body scanners. And EPIC had been you know, talking about these body scanners for a while. If, you, if you'll recall, they were rolled out in airports around 2010, 2009, 2010. Um, I think it started off in the Bush administration and then it became a little more widespread uh, in the next administration. And Epic had been working on this. Epic had been using FOIA to sort of pry government documents out for years. Um, and so when I got to Epic, we started using FOIA requests to try to get more information about those TSA body scanners. And the documents that we got, we had to sue for some of them, I believe, probably most of them, possibly all of them. Um, so we got documents back that showed that the scanners were, uh, you know, questionably effective at picking up powdered explosives, which were the big threat of the day. Uh, and they were unquestionably invasive. Uh, the documents that we got showed that the machines had the capability to export the very graphic photos that they were taking. Now, I mean, people who are around, you, we may have some young audience members who are too young to remember, but you know, you can Google the images that these machines were producing. They were essentially a naked image of a person. It was x-ray vision, um, which is, you know, in a certain light, very impressive, but it was also very invasive. And these images were being sent to a computer back in a room that was being monitored by a TSA agent who was looking at all these, you know, naked pictures of passengers as they were passing through security. Um, and finding out that they could export those images, finding out that there was really no point to this, the invasiveness of the machines because they couldn't pick up powdered explosives. Um, you know, that was really meaningful to us. And we were able to take those documents out to the media. We were able to put together a very broad, uh, you know, bipartisan co coalition. I mean, we had folks from the Orthodox Jewish community, folks from the Muslim community, uh, we had libertarians, we had, you know, people who were very much on the left, you know, we had the ACLU um, and all of these groups formed together. And I, I think our arguments and our ability to form that coalition were really buttressed by the documents because we had actual proof. And so we were able to take that to the media and take it to the government and we demanded policy changes. Uh, and the result is the machines that you see in the airport now, which are far less invasive. It's essentially a little stick figure image. And if there's an anomaly, it highlights the place on the image where there's an anomaly. And then you get a, a more thorough pat down in that place. But I mean, that was really not what we were looking at back in 2009, 2010. Um, and it was the FOIA documents, I think, that really unlocked our ability to, to fight that government program. So after that, I was hooked. Yeah, no. I, and during that very time period, I was working for then Representative Rush Holt uh, of New Jersey. And uh, it was in no small measure because of the work that you all did at Epic that he took an interest, uh, you know, in those machines. And he partnered with Jason Chaffetz, uh, Republican uh, House member from Utah at the time, uh, because Chaffetz uh, had had uh, one of his family members, I think it was his mother, 
uh, had, had gone through one of those machines. And, and when he found out what the technology was, he literally just lost it and completely flipped his lid, uh, justifiably so. Uh, and, and that particular technology, for those who are interested in it, it's called backscatter X-ray. Um, and uh, it was, a, as Ginger indicated, it was a huge thing. And so, you know, what Epic was able to do there really does show kind of the power of, of FOIA in that regard. And I, and I think this is another reason why, for those of us who are uh, skeptics uh, of the claims of, of government in terms of the efficacy of technology, are really kind of hard over about utilizing FOIA and, and other means that are available to us, you know, to try to, to get an understanding of this stuff. And, and we're seeing this, of course, more and more with so many other technologies now, particularly in the biometric uh, arena. Um, you know, you've talked a little bit, uh, each of you so far has talked a little bit about you know, why FOIA, you know, motivates you and what got you into it. But um, Emily, I'm, I'm interested in kind of getting a maybe a deeper sense for our audience about how FOIA informs essentially the work that you and your colleagues do kind of across the entire immigration space. Because I think that, I don't think people really kind of fully appreciate just exactly how difficult it is to try to help uh, would-be immigrants or much less asylum seekers navigate mm -hmm. this system when, it, when information is essentially being denied. Mm -hmm. So can you give us a, a broader overview essentially of how you are, are using this? Yeah, thank you for that question. That's a great segue into the the case I wanted to highlight that I've been working on for a couple of years now. So I think one, one really, I should have said one of the other reasons I was hooked um, in terms of FOIA and immigration is because it, unique to immigration, FOIA is required for immigrants um, to obtain records about themselves. I mean, this isn't unique to immigration per se, but the, the, the massive um, pressure that's placed on DHS and USCIS specifically, um, which is the coast, the component of DHS, which is the custodian of the, what are called A files or alien files, um, you know, over 90% of requests, um, FOIA requests to USCIS are for A files. And um, across DHS, the, va the vast majority of requests are for these individual immigration files. So FOIA is really serving a purpose that, it, I mean, I think it's easy to argue is not was not the intent of FOIA um, for an individual to have to sort of navigate FOIA to get individual to get records about themselves. So, a ancillary issue, or or a, a, you know, one of the biggest issues that we faced um, in that space is people just the delay. So, you know, a person files a request for immigration records about themselves, and they have a, a deportation hearing, or they have an application for benefits that they need to complete um, during a certain period of time. And their attorney would like to know what happened to this person um, and what is the likelihood that they are eligible for a certain benefit or that they will have relief from deportation and immigration proceedings. So the case, which is called Nightingale v. USCIS, um, we filed in the Northern District of California in 2019, and we got a really good order. It was a class action lawsuit um, that we filed under the Freedom of Information Act with really straightforward claims. You know, these individuals are under the statute required to get a response from the agency within 20 to 30 days 
Um, and that's not happening on a regular basis. It's taking six months to a year. And we had tons of documentation around that. This isn't the first case that we brought against a, a DHS component um, or that the, the some of the members of our litigation team brought another case against CBP when the backlog became very large. Here, you know, it was a backlog in the tens of, I mean, it was 40-some thousand um, folks were in the USCIS backlog at the time we filed the lawsuit. Judge Oreck was very, very sympathetic to our arguments that individuals who, particularly individuals who are in detention, um, who are waiting for records, uh, are really experiencing a lot of harm. Um, and so we got a good order um, that said you, USCIS and ICE, who at the time um, both were not able to give records within the requisite amount of time. And this is, I mean, we could tell stories all day long about what sort of we uncovered about the dysfunction amongst different FOIA offices within the Department of Homeland Security and how they don't work together very well. Um, and this lawsuit, you know, caused uh, the memorandum of understanding to be um, sort of, they, they had let it lapse, but now they had an agreement between USCIS and ICE that USCIS was going to adjudicate all these A files. They were not to get too technical, but they were taking these immigration records, reviewing them at USCIS, and then sending portions of them to ICE for further review, exacerbating the delay, and then sending it back to USCIS. So it's just a completely dysfunctional situation. Um, the government just last week filed a uh, motion to stay the court's order because they cannot comply. Um, they have been falling behind. The backlog has been growing. And um, I, I just think it's a good example of how in, in immigration, um, FOIA is critical to a person's case. And it's subject to the same bureaucratic delay that we experience when we're filing a FOIA for a memo or a policy, um, but it has totally different implications for an individual who uh, has to have those records for, for an immigration purpose um, or for an immigration case. And I, I, you know, I'll just say too, really quickly on the immigration court side, I mean, the, the council was not involved in this case, but there was a very good decision around having um, decisions from the Board of Immigration Appeal that previously weren't published um, made available because those decisions were being used um, by government attorneys to uh, make a case against an immigration, an immigrant in proceedings. And these decisions were not available. There are thousands of unpublished decisions um, that are used by government attorneys and their arguments that were no, not previously available to immigrants and their attorneys. Um, and so there was a really good decision that was issued where that's now required. So I think that there, you know, in terms of people having access to records, I think we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but um, the agencies just need to do a much better job about proactively disclosing um, a lot of records as well, a lot of uh, memos and, and uh, policies that impact immigrants. Um, and so I think that that's another area. I think there needs to be a lot of improvement. And that's something I think the council should be, should be doing more work around as well. So with, with respect to this entire review process, when folks are having to wait, have there been circumstances where folks have been in need of documents in order to avoid actual deportation? Absolutely. And, and yes, so, and, and they have, they have 
said, I don't want, I can't be detained anymore. And I'm just going to leave the United States. Um, because I can't get a hold of my, I can't get my records. My attorney can't um, assess whether or not I have relief from removal. I think in many cases, they were able to get the court to continue a hearing until the documents were available. Um, but that has not always been the case. And there's some really moving declarations that we collected um, in support of our motion for class certification um, and, our, so, and our motion for summary judgment. Yeah. So, so now we have a circumstance where, in this case, the Biden administration is going into court to get a stay that will effectively make it more likely that people who are, are trying to essentially, you know, work within, uh, within our very arcane, if not insane, immigration uh, legal structure uh, to actually get what they need, uh, either to get benefits or for that matter, to avoid, you know, uh, being deported. What, why, why hasn't DHS attempted to reprioritize some funding in order to get the backlog cleared? It, it, do we have any, do we have any clarity on that at all? Is, is that even been something that the government has been willing to discuss? I mean, what, yeah, I can just say what they've shared with us in Nightingale, um, and they are required to do reporting every few months, and they, um, you can see those compliance reports on our website, is they, they do their surge approach, right? I mean, they bring contractors on, they hire folks part-time, they have, according to them, devoted several million dollars to their program um, in response to Nightingale to improve the process, um, to clear the backlog, to improve processing times. Um, that, you know, they move money around. I, I'm curious to hear what Ginger has to say. Yeah, Ginger, please. So having been inside of a few agencies now, I mean, so there are a couple of problems. The first problem is lack of resources in the FOIA offices, which is a perennial problem. And by resources, I mean staff, but also search and review technology. Um, you know, ideally these offices would have access to the type of, you know, high level e-discovery tools that a law firm or a, a fancy corporation would have in a discovery situation. They do not. Uh, the tools that they have are clunky. When I was working in an agency, what we were using to redact, it was just Adobe. So Adobe, you know, you have to review every single page carefully, probably double review it if you know that there might be sensitive information to ensure that you're not, you know, giving out private information or identifying individuals who could be retaliated against. So you have to do that review and then you mark your redactions with Adobe and then you, you hit the redact button at the end. So antiquated technology, um, inadequate staffing levels, uh, because there's not, on the leadership level, there's not a lot of buy-in on FOIA, which is a problem for resource reasons, but it's also a problem for the, the second big reason why there's long delays in FOIA, because FOIA officers do not have access, like first party access to the document sets that are being requested most of the time. You know, I, as a FOIA person working in an agency, did not have access to everyone else's cloud email. I couldn't go and search another person's email. I had to reach out to that person. Usually they were leadership level, so they had a number of other jobs that they were working on. FOIA was not a priority. So I would have to reach out to an official, probably an SES official, uh, and I would have to ask them to search their email. And then I would have to wait to get their response back. And I would wait a week or two, and then I would ask them again. And then I would wait a week or two, and then I'd ask them again. And I mean, this is like these delays, 
there are multiple layers of reasons why there are delays. Uh, and a lot of it, though, comes down to agency leadership buy-in, investing in FOIA resources and staffing and technology, but also leadership buy-in and telling people at the agency that FOIA is everyone's job. It is an important part of your job. And if you get a response for documents, if you get a request for documents from the FOIA officer, search your email, <laughs> like do it in a timely fashion. So, yeah. Lauren, you were shaking or you're nodding your head there quite a bit. Yeah. Um, any any particular uh, war stories you want to contribute to the, to you the know, discussion? I, I think, yeah, I, I think Ginger's did a, a really fabulous job of kind of summing up the myriad issues that, that FOIA shops kind of face. One of the things that I'd add that we've seen is a real disconnect even between the sometimes limited resources that FOIA shops have, but also not communicating with their IT shops for kind of like what the capability of their tools are. So for example, when we filed a series of FOIA requests with every single government agency for one of our, our audits to see how agencies were handling uh, searches for email, we had so many agencies come back and say, we can't do it unless you provide the exact uh, domain name of the email, which is oftentimes impossible for a member of the public to, to guess. And it required us going back with, I'd say, three quarters of the agencies and saying, you need to talk with your IT shop to see if your FOIA software really can't do that. And a number of times agency FOIA office would come back and say, oh, after talking to our, our IT department, turns out we can do that. Here's here's X, Y, Z. Um, so that's 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 a big issue, particularly as more records become electronic or particular issues that um, FOIA requests for electronic records generate. And I also was thinking when Ginger was talking about, you know, FOIA officers not having access to, you know, every agency record. You know, we file a lot of FOIA requests with the State Department. The State Department has a particularly unique FOIA setup. Most of their FOIA officers are retired or part-time uh, foreign service officers. Um, so you can imagine with the pandemic and everyone working offsite, that added a whole lot of delays on top of a program that already has a ton. But there were a number of instances where, you know, I would submit a FOIA request with the State Department and it became clear to me that I also needed to outline you know, please search X, Y, or Z bureau. You know, most of my FOIA requests have been on Afghanistan or Iraq, so it's please search your bureau for Near Eastern Affairs, et cetera. Um, and the number of times FOIA officers came back and said, thank you so much, I wouldn't have known to look there. I mean, it, 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 it's frustrating, but it also really behooves you as a requester um, to inter inform yourself as well as you possibly can about an agency's record keeping uh, system before filing that FOIA request and adding a couple due diligence uh, steps when you file that initial FOIA. Uh, looking at agency org charts can be really helpful um, because these offices face a host of issues. Some are kind of by design, some are kind of by neglect, some are training issues. Uh, so really informing yourself as best you can uh, with the information about an agency before you before you file a request, I think tends to to help a lot. Yeah, and it's probably worth you know just letting folks know that the National Archives and Records Administration um, is responsible uh, on an executive branch wide basis for publishing what are known as record control schedules, mm -hmm. and that's and that's I will also say that I think it's extremely important if if you really want to you know kind of get into this arena, even as a requester, getting yourself uh, kind of squared away at the outset by understanding, you know, at least from a public standpoint, 
what information technology systems they're having and exactly what kinds of records they are actually required to keep for how long, all the rest of that. <clears throat> that kind of additional due diligence up front can really help in many cases to kind of mitigate some problems because, you know, like the rest of you, uh, I have encountered uh, folks at offices sometimes, they're federal employees, sometimes they're contractors, who simply do not have the same level of understanding that I necessarily do about, you know, where some of these things are located. And in, in the contract environment, since these contracts are, uh, you know, rebid uh, with, with some level of frequency, you're going to be likely over the course of several years to wind up working with maybe two or three different contract FOIA employees along the way. And whether or not whether or not there's any kind of institutional memory that gets passed along about, you know, what's what and where things are located and, and what's actually potentially available. I think that becomes, uh, you know, another one of these issues that we're dealing with. Um, and Pat, if, if, could I add on to that really quickly about the records disposition issue? Yeah, absolutely. So the records, you know, filing a successful FOIA request, you know, it's predicated on the records actually having been preserved in the first place appropriately, right? Um, it's kind of part of this this universe of, of records keeping systems. NARA is in charge of reviewing every agency's records disposition schedules. It's one of their most important and kind of in some ways opaque aspects of, of NARA's job. Um, and there was an inspector, a NARA inspector general report from 2019, perhaps 2018, that really called out the access branch, which is the component of NARA that reviews these records disposition schedules just doesn't have enough oversight, doesn't have enough staff to really vet these things appropriately, uh, which we've seen with some alarming records disposition uh, schedules uh, that have come out in the past few years. So it's, it's an incredibly important component of the records management life cycle, and it's not one that's currently functioning. It's kind of indicative of, I think, how the rest of NARA functions. Um, it's not properly staffed, it's not properly funded, it needs more tools um, because it really is a, a central component of even getting that, that appropriate FOIA request. You know, we're, we're talking essentially today about government oversight, uh, essentially from a civil society standpoint, those of us who are outside of government, you know, trying to get uh, access to material for, for our, our work purposes or in the case of of uh, uh, AIC, for example, uh, clients, actual real human beings who, who need the records. Uh, it, it is enough of a challenge for us, but the larger challenge and the one that Ginger touched on, and I'd kind of like to revisit that for just a second, is this internal dynamic whereby you have folks who may want to be helpful to you uh, as the frontline FOIA officer, but they don't have access essentially, as Ginger indicated in most cases, direct access to the records that you or I or somebody else, you know, might be seeking. So Ginger, can you kind of give us a sense on just on the basis of your experience and, and what you've heard, you know, from colleagues, maybe you've had experiences with other agencies, senior management, what, and, and also down essentially to, let's say the subject matter expert level, right? The person who actually has the records that you want, right? What's the mindset there? Because the, and the reason I'm asking is because I, I view this ultimately as like a conflict of interest, right? If, if you're asking for records about something that potentially involves uh, waste, fraud, abuse, criminal conduct, and, and the day-to-day and -day custodian of those records was somebody who was actually involved in the waste, fraud, abuse, or criminal conduct, and the FOIA officer 
essentially has to rely on that person to be truthful. Uh, how, how is that working out <laughs> for lack of a better so word? I will specify first that I am fortunate to have never encountered that particular situation at the agencies that I worked at. Um, but I, I, I can certainly see how that would be a problem. Um, you know, it, a lot of times FOIA is being used to expose potential uh, either you know, it could just be a controversial decision that someone has made, not even not even an ethical problem, not even something that's misconduct per se, but just something controversial. And there's a real temptation there to want to cover your tracks, to want to to cover your other parts, uh, to ensure that you that nothing embarrassing gets disclosed, to ensure that that nothing that would look bad for you or the agency gets disclosed. And so I do think that there is a conflict of interest there if you're relying on someone who whose misconduct or just whose controversial decision or, or problematic email might be disclosed. If you're relying on that person to do the email search, you've got a problem. That makes it real complicated. I, I don't think you can expect a full and forthcoming uh, disclosure there. And, you know, one of the other things that I've, I've thought about, and this is especially, I think, relevant in both a national security um, and maybe to a slightly lesser degree, but maybe not by much, law enforcement context. Uh, and that's this, you know, there are an awful lot of activities that the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, and many federal law enforcement agencies engage in that involve uh, classified information, the use of classified sources, or the use of confidential human sources, uh, all the rest of that kind of thing. And for those of us who would like to see a much broader implementation of the use of electronic discovery or e-discovery tools uh, in all these FOIA offices, the one thing that I feel fairly confident about is that we will very, very certainly get massive pushback from the three-letter agencies that do this national security-related work or law enforcement work, because they're probably going to, and I just want to hear if folks disagree with this, essentially. They're going to make an argument that, well, look, now you're now you're basically opening up all these extremely sensitive records to somebody who is essentially, and this is not how I look at it, but they're going to argue that's basically a paper pusher. Uh, that that creates a new counterintelligence risk. That that creates a uh, a new risk for leaks. All the rest of that kind of stuff. Do you think that's a, a legitimate argument? Um, and if we think it is a legitimate argument, do we, do we think we have any counter arguments why e-discovery can still be accomplished? even in those kinds of circumstances. Does, does that does that question kind of make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly think it makes sense. I'm, you know, the National Security Archive tends to take these, you know, national security exemptions claims um, with a with a grain of salt. I think one of the the issues that you have in FOIA kind of going back to the, the Q&A with Ginger about conflict of interest is, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you're at an agency or a, a contractor working for an agency, and there's not a whole lot of incentive to release a FOIA request, you know, especially if it's one that could make your, your work environment a little bit more difficult. And I think there are really human elements uh, to making these decisions that that become a little bit problematic, which to me is all the more reason to take better advantage of e-discovery software and that kind of thing. And we're really at a point with backlogs 
uh, the sheer number of records being created, especially the prolific number of electronic records that there's no viable way to continue to do FOIA predominantly manually. It's, it's, we're, we're facing a tsunami of records coming in and that tsunami is not getting any smaller. Um, so it's something that, that agencies really need to get comfortable with sooner rather than later. Um, you know, I, 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 talking about e-discovery software and agency capabilities and all that stuff is also complicated by the fact that not every agency uses the same, the same software, capabilities are different. Um, but these are kind of things that if you're going to fulfill the requirements of the statute, um, you have to embrace it, is, is my, my take. And, and just to kind of jump in real quick uh, to draw upon, you know, uh, some of the uh, questions we're getting from our online audience, um, getting a fair number about uh, my former employer, the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, and one person uh, anonymously here says the CIA lacks transparency in its FOIA responses. Oh, um, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming, Lauren, that you would wholeheartedly agree with that. Oh, hey, yeah, I, I'm, you know, the CIA, there's a, there's a little sign in our office, which is, you know, treat all FOIA officers with good faith, um, <laughs> you know, perhaps unless they're, they're at the CIA. So, yeah, I mean, I, we definitely run up against the biggest issues with folks at the CIA, NSA, FBI, those kind of agencies. Um, one of the biggest cases we have, we don't file a whole lot of, of FOIA lawsuits. We've been around for about 40 years when we file about two a year on average. One of the biggest FOIA lawsuits that we filed in recent memory was against the CIA, and it was for the fifth volume of their Bay of Pigs history operation uh, that was originally requested by uh, the author of that of that uh, that volume, and it was we held in full uh, pursuant to FOIA's exemption B five, um, which we called withhold it because you want to exemption because that's basically how we how we saw it being invoked. And the CIA kind of saying, no, releasing this information would confuse the public, which, you know, we, we were communicating with the author of the report. We knew that wasn't true. Uh, we filed a lawsuit for it. We're embroiled in a lawsuit for it over the span of a few years and ended up losing the lawsuit in 2014. And an uh, opinion actually authored by Brett Kavanaugh mm. uh, basically saying, no, this this 30 plus year old document about this 50 year old event must remain secret uh, pursuant to the the way the the statute was being interpreted and the ruling and the CIA's argument backed up by the Justice Department was so egregious that we were able to kind of take it to to Congress and say look I mean this is this is just getting you know too Alice in Wonderlandy uh, and that actually helped Congress um, in the 2016 amendments uh, institute a sunset for for B5 at 25 years. And then that document, the fifth volume, did get released in full. Uh, no damage to national security. Nobody seemed confused by it. And all this, this document was, I shouldn't say all, I don't want to be dismissive of it for historians, but it was the CIA's own investigation into its handling of the operation. And lo and behold, there was a lot of infighting, a lot of sniffing. It was, it was an attempt to kind of cover dirty laundry, if you will, more than actually protect uh, confusion, the confusion of the public, um, you know, and we oftentimes get responses from particularly the intel agencies of documents that are, they're saying must be withheld in full or predominantly in full, even when these documents have already been released in full by, you know, say the State Department in the Fruce series or what have you. Um, and, you know, I, I think sometimes this is, this is intentional. And I also think sometimes it's an issue of just not knowing what else has been released not doing your due diligence as a FOIA officer or perhaps 
or perhaps a contractor to really see what else has been released. Maybe it's a training issue. I think more often than not, it's kind of a combination of, of all these things, except at perhaps a few specific agencies like the CIA, where that's just kind of the, the MO. Um, I want to kind of take a dive on the B5 thing here in just a second. Um, Ginger. I just wanted to go back to, you know, the national security or law enforcement problems with allowing FOIA officers access to documents directly. I mean, there are ways to mitigate those risks. You know, first, in a lot of agencies, FOIA officers already have to have high level clearances in order to, to view documents. So, you know, there is that way, you know, anyone who's going to have access to the documents has to have a high level clearance. You know, you can track who accesses a particular document set. Uh, you know, if there are anomalous events, if there are anomalous, you know, instances of access, you can track that. So, I mean, I, while I, I am sympathetic to that argument, largely from a privacy standpoint, because I started my career off doing a lot of privacy work. And, you know, the more people have access to sensitive information, the more likely it is to get breached. You know, this just came out, I think, in a conversation about uh, the, the twiddle, Twitter whistleblower. And you know that pretty much everyone had access to personally identifiable information there. And you know you don't want that, but there are ways to mitigate the risk where a limited number of people who have clearances, whose actions in the system are being tracked, can have access to the system. And I mean, IT folks have access to systems all the time, but they just have to be cleared. And you know their their activities on that system are then tracked to look for you know, anomalous activity. Point that Ginger point. makes, and and one of the reasons I think it's a red herring argument is is that argument from law enforcement and the IC community is something you see at every level of the FOIA process. It's not just the search and review. It's you know our FOIA, our all agency FOIA shops going to participate in the national FOIA portal? Um, no, because you see agencies also say no, we couldn't possibly integrate our portal with you know an unclassified portal. Um, so it's it's something you see at absolutely every level, and as Ginger says, there are way to mitigate ways to mitigate all of those concerns. Um, so, Emily, any thoughts on on that particular point? I mean, I would just say that the the issues that we're facing um, tend to be what I think was touched on briefly, where we're fairly certain that whatever um, issues were uh, redacted under B five go oftentimes to um, something that, you know, the DHS just would rather we not see. Um, an example might be, I mean, we have, I think at one point we filed 17 FOIA requests about around families being separated at the border. Um, just, we'd heard that that was happening just prior to, um, you know, the public becoming aware of those policies and um, rightly outraged. And, you know, what we have obtained through our FOIA request, you know, we have seen, you know, we've, we've obtained policies, we've looked at, um, we've, we've discovered lots of interesting stuff, like uh, surveillance of protests around family separation around the country. And a lot of those documents are available on our website. But um, what has been, what has come out and was made publicly available, they, they can't make a lot of it publicly available, but there are actually lawsuits that have been filed um, on behalf of families who were separated for monetary damages. And some of the documents that have been publicly disclosed in a court filing recently were never provided um, in our FOIA uh, litigation. So I think um, 
in terms of oversight, I think that there is just, it's just badly, badly lacking um, where the scope of the, how agencies search, I mean, going to the, the software that's used, it's different for every component of DHS, it seems. Um, and oftentimes when we're in litigation, that is where we spend a lot of our time is trying to understand how the search is happening. Um, and I, I frankly have found over the years that heavily participating in the search, not to say I understand that, you know, manual searches are, are a thing of the past and have to be replaced with something more efficient. Um, when the requester gets in the position of providing search terms, and, and, and giving lots of instruction about where to find things. And this is where um, it, it, it probably differs a little bit in, in, in how we do some of our FOIA work, where in some cases we truly do not know um, what information that the agency has, where it's kept, how it's maintained. Um, we're trying to do better as a community to, to understand. We, we did a FOIA to obtain all of um, the current enforcement databases, right? So that we can be more specific about uh, information that we're requesting. But, but the bottom line is the law requires the agencies to, to do that search and to do it, um, you know, and to provide documents that are sort of meaningful and related to the FOIA request. And the number of non-responsive documents, sometimes the vast majority of records that we receive, it seems as though it's almost like the agency positioning us in a way where we then have to become more involved and maybe overly um, limit our search. Uh, I mean, I think there's a, you're walking a fine line in terms of, you know, wanting to be directive and, and and in our, in our case, uh, the, the council does file a lot of lawsuits because we want to, you know, make the process sort of more streamlined, frankly. Um, but it's because we, we know that we will not receive any information within any reasonable time frame. Um, and a part of it is because I think they're, they tend to, in, the rec in recent years, do very over-inclusive in, over searches that result in lots of non-responsive documents. So, I mean, I think, I guess I'm just saying, I think there's a role for us to play in terms of educating ourselves and, and the systems becoming more efficient um, for searching for these documents. But I also think um, there, there is just a, a, a real lack of um, attention to, a res to the, the responsibility that the agency has to produce responsive documents sort yeah. of as a baseline. <laughs> um, and so that's just kind of, that's an overview of how, how we experience the FOIA process oftentimes when we're going to these um, immigration agencies. Yeah. Um, you know, Lauren, just a few minutes ago, uh, mentioned the FOIA Improvements Act of 2016. And uh, uh, one of our viewers uh, had this to say, the FOIA Improvement Act of 2016 tasked OMB and OIP, and for those who may not know, um, OMB, Office of Management and Budget, of course, OIP is the Office of Information Policy at the Department of Justice, with operating a consolidated online request portal that allows the public to, quote, submit a request to any agency from a single website. They ask, how's that going? How many FOIA requesters use it? And how well is it working? Who would like to have fun with that one? <laughs> I don't know. Ginger, do you want to have fun with that one? or? I mean, I generally don't don't use the portals. Um, in the past, when I had
that I submit a request to more than one agency at once. I mean, I don't know that they're necessarily very user-friendly. I mean, my advice to the government would be to, you know, consult with the requester community while creating that portal so that it can be a little more user-friendly than some of them have been historically. I, I have a feeling I know who submitted that question, um, but as <laughs> you know, as someone who uh, was consulted by the government as they were working on this portal, um, its its progress has been frustratingly slow and opaque for a long time. It functioned more as a directory, if you will, kind of pushing you back to the agency's the agency's website to file a FOIA request. I do think. Uh, in certain ways, it has it has gotten better. You can start to make FOIA requests to certain agencies on there, but it's not anywhere near where it was promised to be in 2016. Um, not quite sure how much funding it has, which I think is another one of the big questions. And for me, from a, a user-friendly perspective, you know, the archive basically built its own FOIA, not portal, but directory with the most updated ways to submit requests to agencies. Um, you know, there are inherent issues, I think, with the way a lot of agencies are using portals. A lot of them use a PAL system, which requires you just users to register, which, you know, for some people is, is a privacy concern. Uh, and for folks like us at the National Security Archive, it doesn't allow us to submit requests as an organization. So there, there's still some, some kinks to be worked out. Um, but one of the things we've seen agencies do lately is say you can only submit a request via portal which yeah. you know is not it requires a certain amount first of all it assumes that the portal is working the way it should be uh, but it's not and oftentimes you have to recreate passwords every 30 days so it's something you have to be actively involved in uh it's a disincentive for folks who are not necessarily is english your first language might not be are you computer literate do you have regular broadband access or internet access you might not um, and to me, kind of just forcing people, this trend of forcing people to use a FOIA or a FOIA portal is it, not in the spirit of the law, um, though, is it better than the CIA only requesting, you know, FOIAs via fax, maybe, but it's, it, you know, it should be allowing requesters to submit FOIA requests in the ways that are most convenient to them, which usually is email. I, I have to comment on the portal issue because this is just blowing up in immigration right now. Um, because, you know, we do trainings for immigration lawyers and we sort of walk through charts and we say, you know, these are, this is how you submit your request to this particular agency, this component of DHS, DOJ is another, um, and OBIM, the Office of Biometric Identity Management. These are all places where you can find immigration, um, records about an individual. And so, you know, we just submitted comments on the form which goes to USCIS. I was talking before about the immigration records that you asked for about your client. Um, and the form just basically said, please, uh, if, I could, if I could just paraphrase, don't use me, go to the portal. <laughs> um, so my comment was, it's interesting that you are so like, you know, heavily pushing the portal on the form that is, as far as we understand, which you just updated, still available for people to use um, to ask for their records. Not to mention one big issue is that people, I mean, this is a little technical immigration stuff, but you know, you don't want to sometimes admit um, your country of origin. It, it could impact your immigration case. Um, 
it's in, it's called admitting alienage. And so it's not that you're keeping a secret. It's just that you don't want to necessarily give the government something that they're going to use against you in ways that you can't possibly know um, at that point in time. And so that's not required, of course, under FOIA um, to provide that information, but you cannot go through the portal without providing it. You will not be able to advance through the portal. Um, the, and, and let me just point out that the fir that first, um, FIRST is a completely different system that is used by USCIS, as I pointed out, which gets the vast majority of FOIA requests. It is not going to be in line with this other reform that's happening around the portals. And through Nightingale, um, you know, we became aware of sort of, and, and this has actually, you know, been made public in hearings um, about this, about FOIA, DHS. There was lots of infighting around whether or not there would be a whole solution at DHS or whether first would sort of be its own thing. Um, and so, you know, and there, and there you have it. I mean, you, again, like you have a massive agency with different components and, you know, granted folks who are trying to get their immigration records from USCIS, that is sort of a different thing, um, than, you know, filing a FOIA for memos and policies at, at, you know, HSI or something, but I mean, it's still, it still just sort of goes to this problem that like we can't, you know, requesters are having to navigate all of these different systems and there's just a lack of uniformity that is just really not in the spirit, um, as you pointed out, of, of trying to just ask the government for records. Ginger, you've had a lot. Ginger, you've seen this from both sides. What are your thoughts? I mean, I think a well-designed portal would be ideal, but a poorly designed portal is, I think, often worse than nothing <laughs> for, for the reasons that both of the other panelists described. I mean, I would like to see a well-designed portal through, through which you can easily submit a request to any agency. I mean, it is a pain to have to, re to, have to research, you know, for the particular component that you want to send the request to, how do you submit the request? I mean, that, that's a pain. Um, but, you know, the one other problem that may be a part of this is that agencies may have to update their regulations too, uh, which is a long process. Yeah. Um, the regulations would probably have to reflect the portal and the new submission requirements in light of the portal. Um, but yeah, I mean, a well-designed portal would be great. I'm you know, Ginger, that. that's, that's such an interesting point because the requirements to the announcement of the National FOIA portal, the mandating of it was in the 2016 FOIA Improvement Act, which also required agencies to update their regulations within 180 yeah. days of the passing. So it's sort of like it could it could have been done. Um, but we, you know, we got this idea from a national FOIA portal from Mexico, which currently has it. Um, so we know we know it can be done. Yeah. And I mean, the the I worked on the update of the regulations in an agency in response to the 2016 FOIA Improvements Act. I will note that 180 days to update a regulation is pretty much impossible. Uh, a lot of them of, were very, yeah. Yeah, they, it would be a very poor <laughs> update to a regulation. I mean, just because of the agency clearance process and the way that regulations are ruled out, you have to get clearance from every component in your agency, then you, you have to take their comments, the internal comments, you know, you have to take external comments, you have to integrate everything, and then you have to publish. I mean, it, it, 180 days was written by someone in Congress who I think had not worked at an agency in the clearance process. So, so, so in that clearance process, Ginger, 
when, when they get done with it, do they have to send that to OMB for some kind of final sign off or is it the agency or department discretion to proceed? I believe usually that you have to clear things through OMB. It's been, yeah, it's been some years. So yeah, yeah. So I that, mean, it's a very, it's a long process. Because you have to do internal clearance first. You have to take internal comments. You have to integrate those comments into your draft. Then you have to publish it in a notice and comment rulemaking. You have to take, you have to leave a specific amount of time for the public to comment. You have to integrate those comments. And then you, you know, I think, I think there was an OMB clearance process that happened before the public comment, but it's been some years. So I'm not really sure. Um, We're continuing to get some interesting questions uh, on the feed here. Uh, and this is definitely one of the things that that I wanted to uh, have us talk about. Uh, Anonymous says, after months of calls by the nation's good government watchdogs, Attorney General Garland issued a FOIA memorandum. This happened on March 15th of 2022. How does it compare to Ashcroft's memo or Holder's, referring here to previous Attorney General's or Holder's memo, has it had any observable impact on the administration of FOIA for requesters or litigants in court? If not, why not? I will, I will just jump in here real quick and say that in my experience so far, dealing with the Department of Justice, OIP itself, and definitely the FBI appear to be completely ignoring that memo. Um, but I actually have had some success on appeal with agencies uh, outside of um, uh, the Department of Justice. Uh, it's none of the normal national security agencies, so so that won't come as any shock there either. But what I wanted to say is that... Um, for those who kind of have a historical bent like I do, this is not the first time that an attorney general has issued a memo like this. Um, I see, you know, in the question that we received here, uh, Ashcroft and Holder were referenced. The oldest one that I have seen was actually issued by Griffin Bell during the Carter administration. So even back then, you know, 11 years after FOIA's implementation, uh, there were major issues essentially with agency compliance and, and all the rest of that. And, and if you actually look at what Bell wrote, it's very, very similar to what Garland himself uh, has put out. So has anybody, do any of you feel like the memo has made a difference in kind of your day-to-day practice of this? I mean, it, no. you know, I started my, oh, go ahead, Ginger. No, 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 go ahead. Uh, I started my FOIA career about around the same time that, that Ginger did. Um, I started the archive around 2010, so it was right after the, the Holder memo. Um, I do think that the the Garland memo could have been a bit more specific, but to me, the issue with these kind of AG memos, similar to, you know, FOIA amendments, I mean, the issue is, I don't quibble as much with the specifics in the memo, so agencies just aren't following them, at least from our perspective, because, you know, the archive kind of has the unique niche of we're filing FOIA requests with the national security state and also for documents that are historical records. So we're talking, you know, most of them are 15, 20, 25 years old. Um, So for us, we have seen no discernible difference, um, unfortunately, but also not really surprisingly, I think given the agency reaction or non-reaction to to the AG memos, because one of the things we've seen historically since the 80s is that if an agency really doesn't want to comply with FOIA, um, they tend to bank on the proven reality that they can outlast an administration. Um, So for better or worse, kind of however proactive an AG 
uh, tends to be on on FOIA. You know, some agencies really just dig in their heels um, and bank on on lasting longer than than the administration or the AG itself. <laughs> and we'll we'll come back to that issue in, in just a second. But Ginger, go ahead. I think you had something. No, I mean, I think it was nice to have the memo. I think it should have been issued earlier. And I think that there are other measures that it, this administration should take to do more outreach. I mean, when last I heard there was not a person at the White House whose you know sole or even main focus was FOIA and OpenGov. I mean, they do have someone who's, who's great, but the portfolio is very large, um, you know, far too large to, and far too many other high priority items to really accommodate FOIA as a priority. So, I mean, I think if the administration wants to signal to the transparency and accountability community that they care, they need to have a person whose job it actually is to care about FOIA and to engage with the community. So I think that would be a bit more meaningful than just issuing a memo sort of later in the game than it ought to have been issued. Um, I mean, I think the memo was good. I think often these memos are good. The ideas embodied in them are often good, but there are more meaningful steps. And, and I mean, I think also accountability for poor FOIA performance, you know, that has to come from leadership down and, and that would perhaps be more meaningful than just issuing a memo. Ginger's completely right. I mean, coming from the DOJ itself, you know, I think it was a year after the Biden administration started, it took at least a year, maybe 14 months. Um, you know, for me, I, instead of, not instead of, but, you know, have your Office of Information Policy, OIP, um, instead of encouraging FOIA compliance, actually enforcing it. So these are, I think, kinds of steps that would be more meaningful than a memo. Emily? I'll just say from the litigation perspective, it absolutely was the change in administration and immigration versus um, any sort of pronouncements about uh, how we need to um, be more transparent um, across the government. I and, and you know I don't work as much in the policy the FOIA policy sphere, but it, it did seem to me that it was just what <laughs> it was more the story about how we have we don't have a memo yet. Um, and why don't we, and what is, what is happening here? Um, you know, we've moved into a new administration and we're supposed to care about open government in this administration. And we still don't have a memo, um, was more, was more the feeling that I, I was getting. Um, but I do think in, 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 in litigation, I think what was interesting is with the change of administration, some of the FOIA projects that we were involved in, um, you know, asking about the migrant protection protocols program, which was, you know, where they, the Remain in Mexico program and, and which has been through lots of litigation up to the Supreme court, but we had a FOIA pending on that. And, you know, opposing counsel was like, well, I mean, that program doesn't really exist anymore. So you probably don't want to pursue your FOIA any longer. Am I right? And I was like, mm, it's still in litigation. So we're still very interested in how <laughs> this administration is going to handle MPP. Um, so I think that there was, it was more about, you know, are there, are you actually still interested in this in, in information and how are you going to pursue it, um, with this administration? I, it was, it was absolutely business as usual in terms of the government pursuing all of the same exemptions, um, you know, pushing back in exactly the same way. I, I, I have seen nothing in terms of, you know, we would like to, uh, share more, be more open not um, default to uh, withholding information. That That is still business as usual in, in our work. And Emily, so it didn't fix FOIA. 
<laughs> yeah, Emily, shockingly, that memo did not resolve did not, all of our problems. Did not solve all of our problems. Emily, you literally just touched on a number, uh, one of the other things that uh, that I wanted to try to get to. And and I'm sure that uh, all of us who work in this particular field have, have experienced this. And that's these completely outrageous, uh, are you still interested uh, in receiving your information? If not, we don't hear from you. We're going to close this in 30 days uh, kind of memo. I'll ask the lawyers of the group, does FOIA permit that? Does, does the statute as written, can it be, inter- let me put it this way, can the FOIA statute as written be interpreted by an agency or department lawyer to allow them to do that? I think if you ask DOJ, their answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't agree with that interpretation of the law. Um, I mean, there's no right, it's, it's case law, right? Tenth exemption. Yeah, there's no 10th exemption that allows for you to just kind of withhold information because the FOIA request is too old. Um, I mean, I don't I, I could never find the provision in the law that allows them to do that. Like I understand I, I the most charitable interpretation of the use of still interested letters for old FOIA requests is that they're trying to preserve resources. Maybe you really aren't still interested. Um, I mean, in no scenario, though, can I see a justification for closing a request if you don't demonstrate interest? I mean, maybe you hold it in the queue, but even that doesn't have strong statutory support. I, I don't see anything in the statute that supports that. Emily? No, I mean, I, I absolutely agree. I was going to let um, other sort of more steady voices talk about this issue because it's so <laughs> aggravating on so many levels. And I think. I think what's um, most frustrating about it is, I think, you know, the way Ginger described it is right, is it's sort of, um, it's like an informal discussion that they're having in a formal letter. So you're not really interested anymore, huh? And yes, uh, what would lead you to believe that I'm not interested merely because of your, you know, systemic problems and consistent delay in responding to my FOIA requests? I actually... um, pulled out some language because it, when you when you said that we might be talking about this a little bit, it just so happens that in the last week, one of the attorneys on our staff came to me with like, like sort of slack jawed, like I cannot believe she doesn't do as much FOIA work and she'd received one of these letters um, <laughs> in response to one of her FOIA requests. And they mixed up all these issues into this same response um, saying, we need for we don't have you're not providing us a reasonable description of your records we'll have to spend a significant amount of time to create a record with the information you're seeking which also problematic because we were asking for data and the idea and the response is it's not the information that we have that the agency has is not formatted so that the data you are seeking could be readily pulled so it'll take too long and we don't have to create records please resubmit your records and perfect your request. Um, and if we don't hear with you within 30 days, we'll assume you're no longer interested. <laughs> it's like nine issues. Wow. Um, but maybe we can just, if we just stick in that 30 days and you're no longer, maybe, maybe we've scared you enough at this point that you, you know, won't bother us anymore. Um, so, you know, she wrote a lovely response with, more case law than she probably needed to include around how you need to query databases and provide records. And we're not asking you to create any or provide records you have. We're not asking you to create anything. 
Um, but yes, this idea, and, and also, by the way, in her response, she said, I have reached out to your office now twice and have received no response. And so I'm not able to perfect the request. Um, you know, if you would like to have a conversation with us, and I don't mean to sound so cynical, but I mean, it really truly is. This is an, a, a very gifted attorney who is, you know, arguing cases in federal court all the time and coming to me with this, like, uh, you know, her aunt, her little FOIA project over here, like, what is happening? Um, so, you know, it's sort of, it does feel like um, Alice in Wonderland. I think someone said it earlier. I mean, yeah. you know, it's, these are, these are issues, right? That do have, I mean, some of these issues, they're different issues. And the way that the agency presents them um, to requesters is like, feels intentionally confusing um, mm -hmm. and intended to confuse. And also like, I'm not going to even bother, you know, really parsing these things out and just hope that you'll go away. Um, it's, it's insulting to the requester community to receive that, responses like this. That, that, that has always been um, my attitude about this stuff. I mean, you know, look, I, I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think there would be anything that would prohibit them uh, from taking my name and calling the Social Security Administration and saying, hey, is this guy dead? Oh, he's still alive? Okay, well, I guess he still wants his request. Um, to me, that's the only way, unless I, the requesters, tell you, now nah, I'm done, we really don't need that. Unless I'm dead or I tell you I'm done, no, uh, you need to cough it up. Even then, that, you know, Pat, I could see you putting in your will that someone else inherits your FOIA request. <laughs> I mean, this this whole issue was the subject of the archive does an audit every year of a particular area of FOIA noncompliance across the government. And you aren't in the room with me, but this has my this issue just has my blood pressure going up immediately because it has always it has always driven me nuts. Um, so our audit last year, the archive has filed over 80,000 FOIA requests in its history. So we have a very sophisticated tracking software of our FOIA sequence numbers, agency FOIA sequence numbers, and the kind of responses that we get from agencies, as well as scanned versions of all our correspondences and documents received, uh, which allows us to, I think, hit on something that, that Emily mentioned earlier, which is use our own data to really show the true narrative of what's going on, as opposed to what agencies are saying. But we did this last year with still interested letters because they drive me nuts. There's nothing in the statute about them. And even though DOJ came out with some guidance a while back saying agencies need to limit their use of these and when they have to use them, they need to provide requesters at least 30 days. Well, our office still, still sees uh, still interested letters saying you have seven days, you have 14 days, what have yep. you, that on its, on its face are ridiculous. And then just yep. like Emily said, we're starting to see these combined with inappropriate statements that this is not a reasonably described FOIA request, it's not specific enough, which kind of conflates the whole issue of just because it may be work for you does not mean that it meets this unreasonable FOIA request uh, threshold. Uh, so combining these kinds of letters that really I mean, if you're a novice FOIA requester, you don't have the resources or the time. I mean, it's going it's it's a disincentive to go back and say, no, this is this is not right. I'm still interested, and you still have to process the FOIA request if you want it uh, the way you initially submitted. But I think one of the things that makes these kind of responses, these hybrid, still interested, your FOIA is not perfected, more frustrating, is that agencies 
don't give you appeal rights often when you when you get these responses because they're mm -hmm. not counting them as a perfected request. Mm -hmm. So then if you take the response of, you know, appealing it as opposed to just, for example, emailing back and trying to, to get in the record, get get on the record with the, with the FOIA officer that you're still interested, then you have them saying, well, it was never perfected. You can't appeal. So you're you're doubly out of luck. Um, so this is this is a big problem, and our audit found that one in five of the still interested request letters that we received throughout 2020 didn't even follow OIP guidance. They weren't giving the appropriate time frame, and so it's it's message hasn't gotten to agencies. Let's put it that way. I just want to add one further complaint onto yeah, that, please, because um, I did re I did receive one of those letters pretty recently, and it was a hybrid letter. It was you know still interested. Also, your request is unperfected. My request was not unperfected. Uh, my request was based on a, gov a publicly available government document. I referenced the page numbers of the document and documents that were mentioned inside that document, and still I was told that my request was unperfected. The government had acknowledged these documents exist, and but my my extra level of grievance was that there was no individual's phone number mm. on that letter. So there was no one I could reach out to, to talk about my request. And, you know, I called the general phone number on the letter and I ended up in, in the agency's phone tree, which is just heinous. And, <laughs> and I was going through the phone tree trying to get this person. And I did find finally a, the FOIA officer and I left a message, never heard back from that person. Um, it was only because I have like a personal contact within the agency that I was able to reach out to, like someone I know personally. It was only that that allowed me to have an actual conversation with the agency. And it turns out my request was perfected. There was no problem with my request. And, and to, that, <laughs> to that end, we, we've, all of you have basically used this, this, the phrases perfected or unperfected. Let's just quickly kind of educate our audience on exactly what we're talking about there. Number one, is that in statute? Is that, is that language of perfection, so to speak, in statute? I don't know that the word perfected is in the statute. I perhaps Ginger or Emily know, but the main requirement for the FOIA is that it one, it be submitted in writing and then it give the FOIA officer enough to go on to reasonably conduct a search for the record. Those are the main requirements. Now, because of the volume of FOIA requests and the backlogs that folks are seeing, it behooves you to be as specific as possible, absolutely. Um, but for example, so we always advise folks, use a date range, uh, include names and alternate spellings of names, uh, particularly if individuals are you know, in the foreign policy sphere and that kind of thing. Uh, cite uh, bureaus or components of an agency that might most likely have these things, but these are just good tips. These are best practice. It's not in the statute itself. Um, and I just wanted to follow up on something that Ginger said as far as trying to find someone to talk to. Agencies won't necessarily tell you. You can go to OGIS, which is the Office of Government Information Services, uh, if you have a, need, a real need for help from a neutral arbiter. Or you could always try the agency's FOIA liaison. Um, so that's sometimes more successful than others. Um, but that information should always be on an agency's FOIA page um, if you need if you need someone to try and talk to. Yeah, and unfortunately, that information isn't on some agency's FOIA pages, which is the fourth level yeah. of frustration here. And from so 2007, the, that's a requirement. Yeah, it's a. Re I mean, there's a lot of requirements these agencies are not necessarily meeting. Um, going back to Pat's question, though, um, 
about what's actually required in the statute. You know, the statute requires that you reasonably describe the documents. That's, the, I mean, perfected is sort of that's agency language, but you know, you have to reasonably describe and the agencies try to use that as an excuse, I think, to close requests a lot of the time. Um, but you know, the onus is, I, I think in that instance, the onus should be on the agency to reach out to you and have a conversation with you at the very least to provide you with a phone number of an individual who has a uh, disposition that's well suited to customer service, uh, who is willing to talk to you about clarifying your request. There, yeah, so, because there's, yeah, go ahead. I mean, there's I was just, the issue. Yeah. Emily, Emily, go ahead. I was just going to say really quickly, I really hate to say this because I know I've looked at this before and I just, it's like, I just want to deny it in my own mind that this is true, but the, there is regulatory support in the DHS regs, not that it's in the statute. So somebody should file a lawsuit, but, um, you know, it, it is there where it talks about, um, you know, 30, you know, you have, if if you do not if the component determines that it's not reasonably described, um, it can it you it will reach the component will reach out to you, um, and if the requester does not respond within the additional with the additional information within thirty working days, the request may be administratively closed at DHS's discretion. I mean, yes, but I also think there's other language here about. Um, you should be able to reach out to the agency to reformulate, to modify, to discuss, and also it's not in the statute. Um, and I think that we, you know, we're, we're you know, the, the agency is going to find all of the spaces and, and um, ways to, you know, stretch out the process and make it less onerous for them. Um, so there, yeah, so there's a little support here, but I think in general it, the, it's being abused. And I also think, I'm curious what other folks think, and I don't know if you were going to talk about this, Lauren, but um, to the extent that this has just been kind of become acceptable practice to the point where, you know, OGIS is recommending how to do it better, you know what I mean, as opposed to saying, let us not do it anymore, or taking a harder line, and it doesn't, I mean, because they, in August... I'm, it, it's, it's interesting that there are these assessments that are happening around this. I'm really curious to hear more and maybe we should be doing something in the immigration space, but, you know, OGIS, yeah, said, you know, tell us more about your still interested letters. We understand that, you know, agencies are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. So it's like there's oversight and people are sort of following the issue, but I'm not sure it's changing the practice or improving it. So on that, on that note, let's just take a moment for the benefit of those who are watching and kind of walk them through the Office of Government Information Services. Why was it created? What do all of you basically have in the way of an assessment of it from an effectiveness standpoint? Um, who wants to take that dive? I'm, I'm happy to, to kind of jump in and, and chat about OGIS a little bit. Um, I, I will say kind of broadly, just to, big picture when we're talking about, you know, the FOIA, what's actually in the statute and what agencies are doing. I think if you work in FOIA long enough, you have to kind of have this unreasonable combination of being both an optimist and a pragmatist. Um, so that that's just something you kind of have to go in, go in there with, um, with things like, are you still interested letters, which is, is frustrating, but it is, I think, the reality that, that we're going to be dealing with for a while. Uh, so OGIS was stood up, I think, in 2007, part of the 2007 Open Government Act. And 
they are a component of the National Archives and Records Administration. I think they have a staff of about 10 folks, 10 folks right now. And on a, on a personal and policy level, I think NARA big picture and OGIS included in that, I think they get it. Like I, I think they philosophically get it. Uh, but I think OGIS suffers from the same thing that the broader National Archives suffers from, which is uh, understaffing, not having enough resources. And I think kind of a, if from outside looking in, I'll just say this kind of a, a, a resistance to using the statutory authority that it already has. Um, and for OGIS in particular, what I mean by this is there was a real reluctance to issue what's called advisory opinions to Congress uh, on, you know, kind of chronic FOIA issues. And what we've seen them more doing um, is kind of in, uh, internal mediation uh, on specific FOIA requests, and then maybe picking a handful of uh, FOIA offices across the government, maybe three or four a year to do compliance assessments with, uh, which is really helpful. Um, but it's, it's, it's just not a big enough office with enough enforcement capability I think to to really be what it was intended to be uh, when it when it was stood up. Emily, Ginger, I'm inclined to agree that the limitation of resources and staffing hinders the agency in you know being able to accomplish all that we would like to see it accomplish. I mean, I also think that there are limitations on their authority. You know, they can't really force agencies to do anything. You know, the mediation function is, is good and it's important, but, you know, they can't order an agency to give you documents if at the end of that mediation, the agency is being unreasonable. I mean, the only one who can do that is a court. So I think that there are just sort of inherent limitations in the, the office's ability to take those kinds of meaningful actions. Emily? Yeah, I mean, I... Um... I have found in in my world, I think um, one of my co-panelists mentioned this earlier, that OGIS, um, in terms of uh, providing an opportunity through the FOIA Advisory Committee, which I did serve on for, for the, um, in 2020 through 2022, um, you know, spaces for advocates, um, requester, community, um, and agency folks to come together and really sort of um, be thought partners about solutions to chronic problems. I think that's that's pretty special. I think that was useful to the group. I think um, participation in terms of public participation in that process was limited. I mean, I think for 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 really practical reasons, like it's a it's a long meeting on a you know in the middle of the of a weekday. Um, and I don't know if folks were sort of like, you know, saving that uh, that channel to watch later um, to, to sort of participate in the public meetings and to sort of understand the process in terms of coming up with recommendations as part of the FOIA Advisory Committee. I, I think I have often included in trainings and talked about the, the mediation capabilities um, at OGIS. And I can say that very, very few practitioners um, and requesters uh, use that process. They typically, on my recommendation, um, and just because they have found it to be more helpful as well, go to the public liaison. Um, the DHS public liaison, Amy Bennett, is very helpful. There are 
um, and, and just directly they, communicating directly with the agency. I do think OGIS will shake stuff loose um, when the agency is just not responding. I have heard that has happened. I have not had needed, to, I think we've reached out to OGIS once um, and it's sort of the problem sort of resolved itself. Um, but the, the assessments have been helpful. I mean, I worked at the CIS ombudsman's office for about a year and a half. And I think there's a, a real usefulness to ombudsman offices where you have very special access to an agency. And in the same way we ask through a FOIA request for information, there are these internal records requests that have to be answered by agencies. There's special access to data and information that otherwise we would not have. Um, there was an assessment that was done of USCIS that was instrumental to our litigation in Nightingale. I don't know if OGIS would like to know that, um, but otherwise we wouldn't have had some of the numbers and the data. It's just not otherwise publicly available. So, I mean, that is the, that is the benefit of an oversight office that they can sort of do that deep dive um, and look at how an agency is doing, doing its work and whether it's doing it well. And so if there was more of that, that would, I would think, I would really welcome that. Um, more updated and more um, consistent assessments of agencies and their FOIA processes. Yes, sir. Just, I was just talking, you know, um, Ginger, I mean, so it, two of us here are lawyers. One of us works at an organization that's, you know, a very professionalized FOIA requester organization that po potentially learn. I, you guys have access to attorneys when you need to litigate, right? You have pro bono attorneys. We we have a legal fellow and we also do a lot of pro bono work with a standard uh, set of attorneys. Yeah. Yeah. So we have access to litigation resources. Mm -hmm. Most requesters, almost all requesters do not have access to litigation. So having access to OGIS, I think, is is very meaningful for those requesters. I mean, I, when I worked in Oregon, my job was, it, it was essentially the state government version of OGIS. And most of what I did was mediation. I had no power to force anyone to do anything. You know, I could, I could write reports, but nobody had to listen to them. Um, you know, advisory opinion type reports. But I still think that that function is very meaningful. You know, being able to do mediation for an ordinary requester, the availability of mediation, I think is meaningful. So I, I ultimately think that the work that OGIS is doing is helpful. Uh, I think it's not necessarily targeted at requesters like us because mm -hmm. we have the ability to litigate. So we have that other alternative option, but for requesters that don't have that ability, it, it's very helpful to have this, this other option, you know, if they reach a dead end. I think Ginger is spot on. And I think part of, you know, when we kind of in the professional FOIA community are critiquing or commenting on OGIS, a lot of that is also a successful OGIS is predicated on a successful partnership, I think, with the Department of Justice's Office Information Policy, which is kind of the co-host of the FOIA Advisory Committee. Um, so I, I, I don't think OGIS is to be faulted at, like in terms of kind of the constraints that we're talking about, because they do have a natural partner at DOJ that could be doing more, not only to uh, enforce FOIA uh, compliance, but also like promoting OGIS uh, within agencies. Because I certainly think that the office of the DOJ has a lot more capacity uh, and a lot more, um, if you will, pull within agency FOIA offices just by position of its, its position at DOJ. Lauren, you just mentioned the FOIA Advisory Committee. Um, I think some of you have actually served on it. Um, here we're talking about um, uh, 
just be essentially another federal advisory committee, but laser focused essentially on FOIA itself. Tell us about your, those of you who have served, tell us about your experience and in essence, whether or not you think there is also value added there and whether there could potentially be even more value added. I, so I've served on the committee several times uh, and, and I am currently serving on the committee. So obviously I think there is value. Um, I wouldn't continue to devote my time to it if I didn't think there was value. I mean, I always think that there is value in a multi-stakeholder process, especially where you're having folks on the advocacy side, talking to folks on the government side and working on solutions. I think there are some things that could make that committee more effective. Uh, you know, the committee has made a lot of really, really good recommendations. The committee has spent over the past eight years, a lot of time researching and talking and discussing and, and talking to agencies uh, and, and folks across the spectrum about their experiences and using that to create good recommendations. But many of those recommendations have not been implemented. So, I mean, I would like to see more of a mechanism for you know, implementation of those recommendations. I would like to see Congress pay more attention to what that committee is up to. Uh, and to start implementing some of those recommendations in legislation. I would like to see agency leadership pay more attention to what the agent, what the committee is up to and start, you know, pushing for more implementation. So I don't think the fault there is, is in the committee. I think the committee has exceptionally broad and deep expertise. I think the, the fault is, is in the, on the implementation side in agency leadership and congressional leadership. I see Lauren nodding her head vigorously. Yeah, I mean, I, I've yet to serve on it because I, you know, I like to critique from the outside, apparently. Um, but I think that the FOIA advisory meetings are tremendously interesting and informative. I mean, there was, um, you know, you usually have a, a guest speaker really going in depth on an issue, which is incredibly informative for us, I think, in the in the professional sphere. Um, the committee, I think we're on the fifth term now, has issued great recommendations. And if folks in the audience are curious about the status of those recommendations, uh, the FOIA Advisory Committee, uh, information can be found on OGIS's website. Um, they have a dashboard of the status of all the recommendations. That's really interesting to go back and kind of peruse and see where things stand. But I think Ginger hit the nail on the head. You know, you could have a terrific recommendation for, let's say, the archivist to reach out to OMB to fix something, but then the onus is really on OMB to, to follow up with that. Um, so I, I think Ginger's right that the committee is tremendously valuable. Um, some of the places where it could use more oomph are on kind of what happens after the recommendations are made to specific agencies. Emily? I, I think that's right. And I, I served for the for two years and I would I would definitely do it again. I mean, I think one of my first questions when I came on was, well, what about the recommendations from the previous committee? So those sound good too. Um, so what should we do in terms of follow-up there? And I think in fairness, I think, and what I've, I mean, I was, um, I've spoken to some committee members after I left on immigration related, this, this idea, which I think the agency thinks is outside of totally in la-la land, not re realistic, but just to take all of these FOIA requests for individual records just outside of FOIA, right? I mean, just figure out a different system for that. And it's possible it could be done piecemeal, you know, but the people that they had thinking about this issue after I came off the committee were sort of, it was like 2.0, you know, it was more nuanced, more, it was informed by the previous committee's thinking on the same issue. I think some, I think 
sometimes there you you the you know you're not pulling the same thread as you go from one committee to the next and so you want to make sure that all of the good thinking is preserved that was one of my concerns but i do think that has i think that because committee members continue to serve some of the same committee men members continue to serve that there is that kind of there there continues to be um you know relationships um between former recommendations and and uh, current and future recommendations from the from the FOIA advisory committee. And I, I mean, I can tell you that those conversations are not happening in the typical adversarial system we're in. Um, and you really have to sort of let go of some of that to sit around a table with folks who you, you might fundamentally disagree on some of the solutions, but that's the only, I really do think it's, it's a way forward um, is, is those kinds of conversations. So I found it immensely helpful on a personal level. And I think that um, they're, they're real issues that are being tackled. You know, it's not sort of if, you know, it, it, it's not too esoteric. I mean, it's really, I think it's pretty grounded in, in sort of what people are genuinely frustrated by and would like to resolve. Um, and so I, I don't know, I think, I think, I do think it works, but yes, on the implementation side, um, I want to go and there are a couple that I've been following. So I'd like to see how things are going um, because I think they are really important. Um, some of the initiatives there. So when we, we talk about a search for solutions to me, that inevitably brings us back um, to looking at the 2016 FOIA Improvements Act, which was supposed to, in essence, solve a, a specific set of problems. Um, I'd like to spend uh, as much of, of the last 15 minutes or so that we have just kind of hearing from each of you about what you think has worked, what is not working, and what you would like to see in the way of changes, if an opportunity in the waning days of this Congress actually were to present itself to at least get a bill out there, uh, what, what you'd like to see in it, in, in essence. One thing I, I think has worked, I'll just speak from the archives perspective, is the 25-year sunset on the B-5 exemption. Uh, that has allowed us, if you know, folks haven't picked up on it, we're a bunch of historians, uh, to get some really significant records released that were previously withheld under this exemption. Um, CIA history that I spoke about earlier is one of them. Uh, also, the State Department dissent channel memos, the historical ones we've been able to get released, as well as state's policy planning response. Um, so that fix, from our perspective, has has been has been great. Um, you know, another requirement of the 2016 amendments was updating uh, the FOIA regulations. As Ginger mentioned, you know, that's not really enough time to do a substantive uh, kind of reimagining of the regulations. Um, but it did force agencies to go back and look at them and include language specifically about OGIS. Um, I think that's I think that's all to the good. Um, but, and I, I know and Ginger will probably talk about this a, a bit more, it didn't include a couple things that we were really hoping to have in there, um, which is a public interesting balancing test. And one of the things that we also wanted from the archives perspective was kind of a mechanism uh, for overturning poor agency FOIA decisions that aren't litigation, uh, because litigation is, is outside the realm of possibility for most folks. Um, so that, that to me is kind of the good and the bad, but I, I think the ugliest part of it is not necessarily what was in or out of the bill. It was agencies compliance with it. I mean, we still see agencies, one of the audits we did after the 2016 amendments was seeing which agencies eight months later 
followed the law and actually updated the regulations. And it was something like two thirds of them hadn't even done that. Um, so again, it, the law can be, you know, from my perspective, it could be picture perfect. You know, that's a different story than how agencies are actually enforcing, enforcing FOIA. Ginger. I think one of the best aspects of the FOIA Improvements Act of 2016 was the foreseeable harm test. Um, and having worked in an agency, I, I can say that I do think that that was meaningful. I mean, when I was in a situation that I was, you know, talking with someone who was, you know, far higher up the food chain than I was about what should be withheld in, in a FOIA request for their communications, you know, they, as I think most agency officials are kind of instinctively drawn to, really wanted to withhold a lot of information under B5. And I was able to push back on that because of the foreseeable harm test and say, all right, you want to withhold that information, articulate a foreseeable harm. Um, and that foreseeable harm has to be something bigger than, you know, it's going to harm our agency candor. That's not going to be good enough. It has to be something more particularized. So I think that foreseeable harm was a very meaningful change in the law. And I would like to see us build on that with, with the public interest balancing test, which I think would also allow FOIA officers and FOIA attorneys to push back on agency attempts to over withhold. So that I think is the one big piece that's missing. Um, also, we need a fix for B4. After the Argus leader case, you know, agencies pretty much just have to give deference to whatever a corporation says should be withheld. And I, don't like that. I didn't like it when I was inside an agency. I really don't like it now that I'm on the outside making requests. I mean, I think it, it will result in huge amounts of withholding uh, and we need a statutory fix to that problem that, that reinstates the substantial harm aspect, um, the substantial harm requirement uh, before an agency can withhold, you know, confidential commercial information. Um, so, you know, those are the two things that I'm looking for most is the public interest balancing test and, and a fix for B4. Emily? So I, I agree on the foreseeable harm point. Um, that has been something that has, um, the law has developed in some positive ways. In um, some of our cases, we have had some success. In some cases we have not. Um, and making foreseeable harm arguments. But when judges really take hold of that standard and say, you know, as Ginger pointed out, the harm needs to be far more particularized. Um, we had a, a really good decision in a case where um, Customs and Border Protection officers were standing in for asylum officers secretly, um, sort of posing as asylum officers. Um, and their motives were different than an, than an asylum officer from the asylum corps. They also had less training um, to do credible fear uh, interviews. So these are individuals who have just entered the United States. Um, and you might imagine that the findings of the CBP officers posing as asylum officers were different than an asylum officers might have been. Um, and so this is one of those cases where the real life implications for an individual were that, you know, now their cases may be revisited because this, this program was found to be unlawful. Um, a decision came down where we filed a FOIA to find out who these uh, CBP officers were um, and how this program functioned. And I mean, facts are, good facts are helpful, but the, the judge found 
um, in our favor in the foreseeable harm standard. And it, and it just really takes away that excuse making um, and those sort of boilerplate, you know, responses. It's it sort of, you know, it's it's a it's just holding the agency to a burden is very satisfying um, in in FOIA litigation. And just generally speaking, I mean, I, I hope that it's not just that you have to litigate, but that that sort of mindset um, becomes more entrenched in the, the mind of a, a line FOIA officer when they're looking at, um, the, you know, uh, B5 and, and other exemptions. I'll just make a little plug for, you know, um, something that folks might not have heard about or might not be as um, informed about, but the there are, there's a piece of legislation called the Private Prison Information Act that's not gone anywhere, um, but this would just hold non-federal prisons uh, so private our private prison system to the same standard of information sharing and record keeping as the federal detention facilities. Um, and so, you know, it would sort of extend the FOIA obligations to these uh, private prisons that contract with ICE to detain immigrants. I'd love to see that pass. It's a great one, especially if it also <laughs> included those prison transportation services. But if we could just going back to you know, the 2016 amendments, it, it, to combine it with kind of the before issue that Ginger brought up, which is incredibly important, you know, the 2016 amendments codified a presumption of openness. And then you have this before Argus leader case, and I'll say the archive doesn't get a lot of before denials. But what we're really talking about when we're talking about before is corporate capture of public information. And these two things are not compatible. So a before pick fix even as someone who doesn't get it a lot, is existentially important to the promise of FOIA. Yeah, and, I, and I would say, um, you know, like Lauren, um, I operate heavily in the national security and law enforcement space. Um, and, and my big pet peeve for decades now, um, pretty almost the entire time I've been at Cato, uh, is the fact that the 2016 Act does not the foreseeable harm standard does not currently apply to what are known as B3 exemption uh, uh, statutes. And, and for the benefit of our audience, um, when we talk about a so-called B3 statute, we are talking about something like the National Security Agency Act of 1959 or the CIA Act of, of 1949. And, and just those two alone have such radically broad exemptions with respect to information that can be withheld. And I, NSA is one of my favorites in that section six of the NSA Act of 1959 gives them the ability to withhold anything they want to for absolutely no reason whatsoever. Um, we were able to beat that back a little bit in some of the litigation we did against the DODIG a few years back over a couple of programs called Trailblazer and Thin Thread. Um, I've written about that extensively. If you have an interest in looking at that, you can definitely go to my bio page and you'll, or you'll Google for it and you'll find it. But I, I think that particularly in, in a law enforcement context and in a national security context, particularly in this age of surveillance that we live in, that kind of a carve out is just beyond unacceptable. Um, and I, I would just say generally that I think there needs to be a complete reevaluation of the legitimacy, much less the need for all these B3 exemption statutes that are out there. Um, I think an awful lot of agencies have been successful uh, in, in achieving congressional regulatory capture in getting these things implemented and basically putting uh, putting their uh, activities almost beyond the ability of the public to kind of gain any kind of uh, insight into. We're literally down to our last five minutes. Uh, we have covered an enormous amount of ground. 
um, I just want to give each of you a minute or so to kind of offer your final thoughts. Ginger, uh, let's lead off with you. I'm actually still formulating my final thoughts. So, uh, okay. In, in that case, put me, we'll, put me back in the queue. <laughs> all right. We'll put you back in the queue. Who would Emily, Lauren, anybody, anything you'd like to close us out with here? I'll say, I'll just say that, um, really quickly so that I can listen to their thoughts and I'll, I'll go fast. Um, I, I mentioned it before, but I do think that there need to be more thoughtful whole solutions to um, issues that are specific um, to the immigration community um, where immigrants and their and their representatives don't can't easily access their records. Um, and it's a chronic problem. It's uh, something that I think lots have been lots has been written about it. Um, and I think that, it, you know, it'd be nice to see some real solutions. I think that chronic underfunding is something that just needs to be addressed and that it takes a class action lawsuit and, and, the, and the agency still cannot comply with the statute is real, very telling. Um, there are, there are, there's a real need for more proactive disclosure. I think that we need to be putting a lot more pressure on agencies to follow what we like to call the Beetlejuice rule, the rule of three, where, you know, if, if, People are requesting information, co commonly requesting the same information, put it up on the website in an accessible way so that people can actually see this information. Um, there's so much interest in immigration policies um, and, and how the immigration system works. And there's just such a lack of information that's available to the public. And I also think um, we need to be sure that we're watching and, and carefully and, and providing oversight as uh, over um, records uh, being destroyed by agencies um, because the records disposition schedule is permitted and we need to push back. And there's been some litigation around that and there's been some really amazing successful advocacy um, calling for more permanent retention of uh, records um, by immigration agencies. I'll leave it there. Lauren? I think we can all agree that this feels like a kind of profound moment in American history for, for a lot of reasons. Um, and I think we, most of us would agree that it is also a time when public trust in institutions um, that deal with both domestic and international issues is, is, at a, is, is low. And I think that that is uh, existentially dangerous uh, as a democracy and as a country. And I think that FOIA offers one of the best ways into public trust, building public trust and public accountability uh, mm -hmm. for our agencies and, and what they're doing in our name across the board. And I think that this is just a critical time to really focus our energies on promoting not just FOIA, but kind of all of the branches of these records keeping and classification uh, uh, control authorities in building public trust in all of these. And we've got opportunities to do that right now. We have a new archivist coming in probably fairly soon. We know the National Security Council is looking at the EO that governs uh, national security classified information. And we know that the Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, has stated on the record in congressional testimony that overclassification uh, is a national security issue. Um, I think we have momentum to really make improvements into FOIA and these others tremendously important uh, areas of interest right now. And I think we need to capitalize on, 
capitalize on them. All right, Ginger, take us out. So I think, and I say this all the time, but I'll say it again. I think the biggest issue in FOIA is, well, one of the two biggest issues is resources. Um, and I would like to see Congress devote more resources to FOIA specifically. I would like to see agency heads devote more agency resources to FOIA offices and to FOIA technology uh, and to FOIA staffing. And I mean, on the requester community side, I would like to see folks behave in a socially responsible manner, not making super, super broad requests, super frequent requests, you know, understand that this is, you know, there are limited resources um, and that, you know, we, we all need to contribute to a system that works. So I, I would just like to see more resources devoted um, and more agency leadership buy-in. And I think that is a perfect place for me to say to Emily Creighton, Ginger Quintero McCall, and Lauren Harper, thank you, uh, my friends, so much for carving out two hours of your day to share your wisdom and your experience with us. I want to thank you, our audience, for being with us uh, for this particular program. Uh, I apologize that we weren't able to get to everybody's questions, but uh, hopefully we were able to cover a lot of ground uh, of interest for you. And I will definitely stay um, that if you really do want to find out how to file a Privacy Act request with a federal agency, drop me a line, P. Eddington, P-E-D-D-I-N-G-T-O-N, at Cato.org. And yes, I will respond. I'll try to point you in the right direction. On behalf of the Cato Institute, I'm Patrick Eddington. Thanks for watching.